Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Extra Podcast. This is episode number 233. Good to have you with us again. And today we have Pastor Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. It might be afternoon when you're listening to this, but it is morning for us. You bet. And Pastor Ezra? Good night. It might be night when you're listening to this. Why do you have so, to do hey. something like that? Why you gotta, why you gotta one-up me? I'm, I'm just following in your footsteps, Jeff. I'm a good follower. <laughs> <laughs> and as a special guest today, we have Pastor Johnny Markin. Hi, Paul. Hey, Johnny. Good to have you here. So, um, yeah, Pastor Johnny's with us, and uh, the first question actually is uh, to do with Advent, which Pastor Johnny has a lot to say on. So, <laughs> <laughs> didn't you uh, write something recently? Actually, I had an article uh, posted by worshiplinks.us on Advent, how worship what? can curb consumerism. Mm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You, yeah. you had... It, on worshiplinks.us, yes. you wrote an article. Yes, I'm going to find it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I am. And credit Jonathan Giesbrick with the alliteration on the title of that. Cause, what was know, the title? Like, How Worship Can Curb Consumerism. Oh. So, so it's, it's the C's that he went with. Can yeah. Curb you know, Consumerism. That's right, yeah. Kinda cool. At Christmas. At, oh. You right. It's a cool Christmas. More. It's a cool Christmas. We evangelicals, we kind of don't understand the difference between Advent and Christmas most of the time, right? Right. So not growing up in that whole liturgical background to experience Advent over the last few years, it's kind of like you're growing into it. Now, you seem Mm -hmm. to have a a knowledge about the fact the way the Mm -hmm. candles are all supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this Presbyterian kind of Reformed background at your seminary, so you know Mm -hmm. all this liturgical stuff. But we evangelicals kind of stumble into it. We kind of think Advent is kind of like this uh, season where you open a chocolate calendar mostly, and Mm -hmm. then it's kind of the fun (laughs) part of it. You're, you're against the ch- chocolate calendar? No, I just, no I'm right kids, in for the chocolate calendar. My kids just got the Kinder one. Oh, what? Fantastic. There's a Kinder Isn't one? that illegal going down to the U.S.? You can't take Kinder yeah, eggs. Yeah, it's contraband. Oh, man. That's right. <laughs> really? It's contra- Kinder is contraband in Seriously. the U.S. Seriously. Uh, no, right. bomb, bombs, guns, Kinder, Kinder eggs. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, they have, they have toys inside, and children can choke on them. So it's actually a prohibited candy in the United States. So, yeah. Oh, so no Kinder in the United States. Mm-mm. Well, not their eggs, anyway. Wow. You can get other kinds of Kinder chocolate. Yeah, that could be. Wow. It's good chocolate. It you know is. Chocolate goes, you can't beat it's European tasty. chocolate. It's tasty. It's good. But, you know, like the calendars were all filled with chocolate. My kids, it was all about the Advent calendar when we were in England. We were mm-hmm. around, you know, the like Anglican tradition yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But uh, when we got here and started studying about it, you know, we'd start picking up some Advent devotionals and then realizing Advent was all about preparing for Christ's second coming and not just a, a preparation for getting your Christmas presents mm. and everything else. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's re- really changed the way m- uh, my family and I think about Advent. And so mm. we actually, Darlene, made a little wreath and put some candles up there, and we do the little candle lighting thing. And, oh, great. and it's a reminder of what we're celebrating, a preparation month before we get to Christmas. And then I realized uh, they actually, the 12 days of Christmas actually start at Christmas, and they feast for 12 days until the Feast of Epiphany, which was really? the unveiling of Christ. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why? So, why during the twelve days of Christmas do, do they have so many weird gifts? Ah, it was a, a bit of a legend that the song, the twelve days of Christmas, grew out of the Catholics being persecuted under the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry the Eighth in England in the sixteenth century. And huh. so what they did is they used the songs to teach catechism. Like mm. the 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 partridge in a pear tree, the one signified God is one. You oh, had okay. two. Um, I, what did the drummers two sacraments, Turtle doves, isn't it? Two turtle doves. You had La- three symbolizing the Trinity, four the Gospels, and on it went Ladies five is Pentateuch. Yeah, couldn't quite figure out <laughs> where they got the actual three, objects for. You know, three French Eleven hens. Pipers piping. French hens are supposed to. 
symbolize the Trinity? Three uh, French hands. I think there was a bit of a, a thing to do with the French were Catholic. Oh, uh, yes. And the English were Protestants, right? So they had to okay. work that in there. Is, you okay. know? Somewhat. Okay. It's a bit of an artistic liberty. Sure. Yeah, sure. you know. I wouldn't, have, go, I wouldn't have gone with the French hen. I wouldn't have. <laughs> I would have thought it would what be. What bird a, would you have gone with? I don't know. Partridges, eagle? two turtle doves. The American eagle. Oh. Of course I would. They have a bird in you know, Kenya. George Washington. Wasn't it George Washington? A national rich. bird in Kenya, Ezra? Sorry. No, we don't have a national bird necessarily, but no. what most Kenyans would... Um, is it chicken? Is that oh, what you, chicken. you love chicken. Oh, I love chicken. All right. Chicken is a delicacy. A lot of chickens would die this Christmas in <laughs> Kenya. Just the same way a lot of turkey <laughs> would be eaten. Oh, so chicken is to Kenyans as turkey is to North America. So this first question that we have is about Advent. And uh, so, I mean, Johnny, because of what you wrote, maybe it's more directed oh. towards you. But... Um, so the first question is, uh, Advent is not something that we see in Scripture. Where did it begin, and why do we do it? Advent is one of those traditions that grows up. I mean, just because it's not in the Bible as the word Advent, in mm-hmm. that sense, like the word Trinity. Mm-hmm. There, there are things that we can do, practices that we can do that teach us, uh, spiritual disciplines that teach us. Uh, and so the, the aspect of celebrating Advent actually grew out uh, of the... Feast of Epiphany, in the way that they had. It's a later of the What was the Feast of Epiphany? Epiphany, if you don't know, is actually one of the m- most important feasts of the early church calendar. They had Easter, and they had Epiphany, uh, and those were significant times in which they did baptisms for people to enter the church, mm-hmm. uh, because the symbolism of um, uh, resurrection for the baptism, you know, down and raised to life again, anew yes. again in mm-hmm. baptism symbolism. Epiphany is associated in, uh, with Christ's unveiling, the unveiling of his uh, deity to humanity. Mm-hmm. And oh. so you have the wedding in Cana is celebrated by liturgical churches on that day uh, with the vats. This is his first miracle, turns water into wine, so water is an important symbol at Epiphany. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have people then doing baptism affirmation on that day in the calendar year mm, as well. Okay. So people who were baptized in, I guess as children, or even as adults, they they are to reaffirm their <clears throat> baptism. I think it's a pretty good practice to say, you know, like even when we have baptism services here, when we go and we watch, we are vicariously participating in that baptism again, because we've been through the waters, we are revisiting that, and it's just a way of reaffirming ourselves that we have died to Christ and live by His Spirit. This is a pretty cool tradition. So there are traditions that are helpful in helping us with our spiritual uh, growth. And so should we as Christians hold to this Christian calendar? And there's a benefit in it. It's not a biblical thing, but even in the Old Testament, the, the, the Jewish calendar was to celebrate all that God had done. And so the Christian calendar is designed to do the very same thing, is to, to focus on Christ's story throughout the year. So instead of having a Hallmark holiday in the middle of the year, which is just a cultural... Uh, relevance or whatever, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating good things like you know. You don't love your mother. Is that what you're saying? That's what you're saying to us. You don't want to give a day to your mom. These are good days, (laughs) but the culture, the cultural calendar versus the Christian calendar is the culture often has different views and values from biblical values, right? So they they, by celebrating the Christian year, you go through the seasons. I'm not an expert in it, but you go through these seasons of uh, say. uh, Lent, which actually came far before Advent and Christmas, as I was saying, because that was the time to prepare for your baptism at Easter. So it was a time of ashes and repentance. They have Ash Wednesday, where they put the little cross mm, on the right, forehead yes. to yeah. remember your mortality mm. and stuff mm. like that. Mm. And then uh, eventually, in order to battle against some of the Gnostics 
and who said that Jesus never was physical, the, the idea of celebrating his coming started with Epiphany, and then they, they kind of said, well, we actually think that a feast that could celebrate the actual day he was born would con- be, it would battle the feast of the sun god of the Roman Empire. Mm. And so the 25th on which the Romans, there's an emperor who came while the church had already started to grow quite a lot, and he said, no, we're going to reinstitute this sacrifice to this sun god. It's called Saturnalia. Yeah, Saturnalia, that's right. Right, yeah. And uh, so he he wanted this, to, and the churches rose up and said, no, we want to show you who the true son is, and we will celebrate on that same day Jesus Christ and his birth coming mm. into the world. And so then Advent became the preparatory season to celebrating Christmas, and all this took about four to five hundred years, probably mm-hmm. not until about the sixth century when Christmas became a, a serious so celebration. So, just I mean, and a real practical point that needs to be made about what you just said mm-hmm. uh, is that there are a lot of people who will come I, every year. I get an email from someone saying, "Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because it's a pagan holiday." Yeah, they do. Mm. Which is ki- kind of true in the sense that, yeah, yes, it was borrowed. Saturnalia was mm-hmm. a pagan holiday, but the intent mm-hmm. of the Christians was to say, well, actually, yeah. the things you're celebrating at Saturnalia aren't yeah, real. That's right. That, that God is real. And so there's there's a what we call a polemic value in it, yeah, meaning that, right. that you, by celebrating who Jesus is and borrowing the language mm-hmm. on December 25th and borrowing some of the language of Saturnalia, you're actually kind of sticking it to the to the Roman yeah. sun god, right? So That's right. And December 25th in the old uh, Roman calendar was actually the equinox. That was the calculated, what we would say was December 21st these days, was the shortest day of the year. And the symbolism of darkness uh, being overwhelmed by light now as the days get longer, the symbolism of starting that celebration, showing the increase of Christ's reign in our life. And so you can see the seasonal celebrations that go on through the Christian calendar can help you point you back to the gospel story. And remember, Mm. for hundreds of years, people couldn't open a Bible and read it and hear the story. So you, you saw stained glass in the church, you heard the scriptures read, four mm-hmm. different passages every week when you gathered for church, so that in three years, uh, you would hear the entire Bible read in church. Mm. Right. And so that was your way you heard the story. And so if you had practical things to do to tell you the story, I mean, even the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament and all the values mm. of the clothing was all to point to what God had already done. It wasn't to earn favor by keeping the law. Mm-hmm. It was to worship Him in remembering in the same way that we now remember with the bread and the cup. Right. That's great. No, thanks for... Happy Advent, Paul. Yes, thank you, Johnny. And in keeping with that theme, Advent, we had our first Advent Sunday that just passed, and Jeff opened up a new series called Hark. And uh, with that, there was a question that came in uh, following up on that, and the question is, uh, in looking at the genealogy of Christ, uh, I don't fully understand how this is the line of Christ as it's laying out Joseph's line, who's not actually... Jesus's birth father. I'm wondering how you could explain this. So how does Joseph's lineage draw a connection to Christ? Since he isn't the biological father, why isn't Mary's lineage touched on? Well, Mary's lineage is touched on in the book of Luke. So Luke has that emphasis. In fact, if you read the beginning of Luke's gospel, that seems to be his, his, his point there. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, you were saying something earlier about Matthew, about being uh, uh, his adoptive father, which is sort of an ironic move. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have um, we see we see Jesus born to Mary, and and the the listener here is is right. I mean, Joseph isn't the uh, blood father, but Mary gives birth. Joseph marries Mary and adopts Jesus as his son, which is which is a picture actually of the gospel because. 
God actually adopts us as children, even though we're his enemies. We, um, yeah, we're, we're against him. We're rebels. We're sinful to the core. And yet he adopts us as sons through Christ. So when we see Jesus come and get adopted, there's actually a, a, a tremendous theological value to that. Mm. Agreed. Yeah, Matthew seems to... Matthew doesn't have a problem with the idea. I think is my response to that. And so sometimes when we look at the scriptures, we try, we try to recognize issues that we we might have with it. But the biblical authors don't seem to he he doesn't seem to have any trouble with the idea that that Jesus is in the line of Joseph, the line of who's the son of David, yeah, son of Abraham. So, uh, you know, he, he, he might be. I agree with the language that Paul's just used regarding adoption. I think it's a it's a really good really good image. But I do, I still stand by what I was saying earlier. Matthew's trying to suggest mm-hmm. at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is is both human and ha- in that he has a genealogy, but but he's also divine. And so when you, when you get into these questions, even this question that's being raised is trying to wrestle a little bit with the hypostatic union. It's trying to wrestle with the idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And the, the challenge that philosophy has is that those two things, sh- just in our finite minds, don't go together, right? Yeah. Infinitude, right? That's a divine character trait. Infinitude doesn't go well with finitude, which is human. So, like, which was Jesus? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, this is why this subject is so so difficult uh, to handle, even philosophically, uh, and that's why the church had to have some fights about it in the early days, right? I mean, the area, the Arian controversy in yeah. the early days was That's about right. the nature of Christ and was he a created being? Because it's way easier for all of us to understand it if Jesus was just like the highest created being. Because then we could just say, oh, okay, well, we get it now. He's not fully, I mean, he's God, but more God than us type stuff. Yeah. And yet the church rejected that because we, they were like, no, that doesn't hold up to what the scriptures seem to say about him. And so I was talking to a guy after uh, church this weekend, and and we, he was talking to me a bit about the hypostatic union, trying to figure out some of the things. I said, you know, the early church, and and even now, we can try to work this stuff out philosophically, but what you're left with is in all of your philosophical ponderings, you've got to, it, when when you start making philosophical statements that in in pinge upon or or or, or affect what the Bible says clearly, yeah. right? Then your philosophy is wrong. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense, right? So this is why they have the fights about, for example, uh, what's called about the Trinity. Uh, mm-hmm. People are trying to figure out, well, how how can God be three and one? Well, well, maybe it's just three different forms of God. It's what we call modalism. modalism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But people say, well, wait a minute, what's happening at Jesus' baptism then? Right, because you got Jesus there. You get the Father pronouncing. You get the Father pronouncing. You got the Spirit descending as a dove. So they're all three there. So they're all three present. Yeah. Right. So if it's th- if it's the three different forms of the same, that doesn't work. Yeah. So that does. So in other words, modalism is called a heresy because it's even though philosophically it sort of starts to make sense of some things, mm-hmm. it 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 cuts out. Some of, or it goes against what the scriptures are clearly saying at a place. So we're, this is this tension. You're yeah. trying to hold together what the scriptures clearly say that Jesus is God, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he's and he's man. So I, I don't know. Uh, both both are true. And you've got the atonement implications, 
Right. He has well, to be he has both. to be both. Yeah. Right. And both of those are played on in other places in Scripture. Yeah. That he, ha- he has to be Hebrews both. 2. Yeah. And you also mm-hmm. get into Romans 3. And I think that the, the fact that he is just and justifier of the ungodly yeah. is... Yeah. In order to be justifier, he actually has to be a sufficient sacrifice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this is... Um I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a great topic to discuss. This well, hypothetic. Well, let me let me just say, just about theology in general. Yeah. This is the mm-hmm. challenge that we have in theology versus philosophy. Philosophy is a wonderful tool. The problem is that um, the the Bible will hold in tension ideas that you and I want to sort out. Mm-hmm. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. Man, okay, how how's that work? Yeah. Well, we're gonna we, we sometimes start to solve that problem by by making God less than sovereign. So that solution now, philosophical solution, is not right because God's less than sovereign, less than that's less than as sovereign as the scriptures say he is. Mm-hmm. Likewise, others try to solve it by saying, "Yep, God's sovereign. That means that we li- we're limited in our responsibility." Okay, so that's wrong because now you're you're running up against what the Bible clearly says about the responsibility of people. So, what do you do? Well, you, you try to answer as many questions as you can within, while affirming those two things, and then claim what, what we call antinomy, which is anti-law. I mean, like, uh, I don't know. They're both there, and in the mind of God, they, they work, and we can answer as many questions as we can, but the moment we start getting off track and hurting what the Bible says about something on both sides, is when we have to stop. I hope that makes sense. Well, then the question then would be, sorry to jump no, in, Johnny. Uh, the question is, how do we live with this tension? Bec- be- you live as a finite person dealing with the infinitude of God. <laughs> so, like, I mean, of course, this is the case. I've got a guy, actually, I have a friend in uh, New Zealand who t- uh, wrote me an email the other day, and he wants me to Skype with him because he, he, well, he has a friend and the two of them are going to be Skyping with me. Uh, he has a friend who's struggling with the idea that the world is filled with uh, with pain and suffering to a degree that if God is really good, it wouldn't wouldn't be right. So, in other words, what yeah. if Jesus is is going to deliver us from all pain and suffering, and he's the peace and brings peace on earth and all that kind of thing? Why hasn't he done it yet? Um, I mean, it's a legitimate understandable question mm-hmm. in the in the in you know in the wake of the terror attacks in Paris and I mean yeah. Yeah. and the fact that people are being murdered and killed all sure. over the world the answer question is why doesn't God if he is going to put things right and has said he already has in Christ why doesn't he just bring it to an end the bible has a lot to say about that but at the end of the day you're peering into the mind of God and saying why don't you do it my way mm-hmm. and i want to say because you're not i mean you're not god you don't see the end from the beginning. I don't. I don't see all the issues and details. God is working things out according to His will for His glory and our good, and the Bible says that clearly. He has a good track record of proving that very thing to be the case. The the, the cross itself was mm. an example of of that. Mm-hmm. When everything looked like it was going wrong, yeah, it actually turned right. out to be the greatest yeah. good that ever mm. happened. The worst yeah. evil ever, the killing yep. of God, mm-hmm. yep. turned out to be the greatest glory ever. Mm. So. So can, my response is, you you kind of have to let yourself go with the Lord. Then you guys can put yourself in your mind in the hands of the Lord. I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not saying that we are we should become 
uh, you know, anti-intellectual or anything like that, By or no means, no. or dislike philosophy, or or truncate it, and, you know, cut it off at the legs in any place. I'm just saying that you have to recognize that you are a finite being trying to interact with the infinite God, and that He has revealed some things about Himself to us, and we should speak clearly and declaratively. That's not a word, but you know, like <laughs> strongly about those things that He has said. But then we should also recognize that there's some mystery there, and we should be thankful that there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think I was going to say, Ezra, to you earlier, was that uh, we, we can't let reason triumph faith. And then we have to hold some of these things as articles of faith until God reveals the fullness of the mystery. Yeah, the, the, challenge, the challenge always comes in when, um, say, a listener here is trying to dialogue and debate some of these issues in in their community, in their neighborhood, whatever, with a family member who is more intellectually inclined, who would then say, you know, Christianity doesn't um, doesn't hold water because obviously intellectually the issue of the Trinity, for example, doesn't make sense. Yes, but uh, light, light, light is both a particle and a wave. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be both. It can't be both. How can it possibly be both? How does, it, how does the center of an atom remain unified. There's protons there. They both should, re- they should repel, but there's a thing called the binding force in there. That's a word that, mm. mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a phrase we use to, to try to describe that they're together. We don't know what the binding force is. It's hard to sort out. Right. It shouldn't, it shouldn't work. And yet there in the middle of the, the, the atom mm-hmm. is a conundrum. So I'm saying that we live constantly with tensions. Mm-hmm. Science the scriptures, every, we, listen, we live with tensions that we don't understand yet. Okay, I'm not saying that there won't be a day where we understand better that, that, that light, it lights part, part, the particle nature of light and the wave nature of light are better understood, how they could both coexist. I'm saying that the same thing about theology. There will be a day when we stand before the Holy God that perhaps we will understand how human responsibility and divine sovereignty coexist. That's a good answer. We might not. But that's okay. We'll see God, and uh, we'll say, "Well, you're bigger than me, so <laughs> I think I'll just, I'll just leave it with you." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, theology used to be called the queen of the sciences, right? Mm. So I think that's a fitting what, phrase. What ends up happening in this, in what should happen with all theologians or anybody who asks questions about theology, is is there should be this really uh, humble. <laughs> Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're dealing in depths where, you, like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you immediately realize that you're completely out of your depth. I went to Evangelical mm-hmm. Theological Society a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and I'm like, a couple of the papers, I'm like, oh my goodness, these guys are yeah. so beyond what I'm thinking about and understanding. And you get this humility. That's why I like going. This humility inside of you that says, I don't, I don't know, I don't know anything. Well, I think that should mark most a lot of our theology. But on the other hand, we should be bold regarding the things that God has clearly stated. That humility can become cowardice if you don't state clearly what the Lord has clearly stated. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So there's kind of this twin, you know, a humble boldness that mm-hmm. you got as a, as a theologian. So when the scriptures tell us that uh, Christ was conceived in a virgin birth, we have to lean in by faith mm-hmm. and trust that there's... a some mechanism that by which God made it happen, but we call it a miracle, and it mm. it is a right. miracle. And people want to debate that mechanism. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was one of the questions that was asked me after the service on mm-hmm. this weekend. Well, how did the virgin birth take place? You know, unfortunately, uh, Matthew does not include the, the mechanics of mm-hmm. it. 
Uh, so, so I don't, I don't know. So we lean on philosophy there. And again, though, it's fine for us to conjecture about philosophy. It's great. The problem is that sometimes our philosophy ends up uh, hurting part of the biblical record. And mm. when it does that, it's wrong. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, plunging the depth of Scripture, like, like Jeff said, it's something that we should approach humbly. I mean, like... Uh, to, to use as an illustration, I was talking with a friend yesterday who goes scuba diving, and he, he said he was in the Philippines, went scuba diving down 100 feet, and then they, they were at the edge of this underwater cliff looking over, and, and uh, you look down, it's another 600 feet down, but like, you don't go, when he's like, he's like, when you're down there, you don't, you aren't in control. Mm-mm. Like, you don't act like, yeah, I'm the ruler, I can just go down another 600 feet, no problem. Like, you, you go down there understanding the gravity that's upon you, and, and you, you plunge those depths with, with humility. Right. You know, and in, or, in order to de- grasp God's word to its depth, too, we need to also approach it with humility. So, let me give you just one more il- illustration or example. Uh, I, was re- I received an, an email a few weeks ago where uh, the emailer had, had, had an issue with uh, a phrase I used in a prayer before a sermon, and the, the phrase I used was that we thank God that, um, that that God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's a quote from 2 Corinthians 5.21, right. which says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the ESV. Now, the, the emailer said it's, it's, it's a demeaning thing to say about Jesus, who is God, that he became sin. Right? So the passage says, for, he, for our sake, he made him to yeah. be sin, who knew no sin. That's a good translation of this text. Mm-hmm. His critique was, but if that's the case, then he's less than God, if he was made sin, because God cannot be made sin. See? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that must be wrong. Okay? And in fact, it's, it's a demeaning to the Godhead and these sorts. So here's a guy who's trying to wrestle with the idea that Jesus is both man, human, and, and divine. Yeah, right. But his response is that he, he says, well, a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.21 can't be true or can't be saying what it's saying, and you shouldn't necessarily quote it <laughs> because, uh, because it doesn't work within this philosophical idea that God, he's both, right? Because you don't want to demean his godness at all. But yet it says what it says. So Paul didn't yeah. seem to have any trouble saying it. That's right. So here's, this is my point, is that, okay, now your philosophy is getting in the way of Scripture. So here's what you need to do. You need to say that he is God, 100% God, and you need to say that he, uh, for our sake, Jesus, uh, or God made Jesus to be sin. Yeah. And, you, and you'll say, but how does that? And I'll say, yeah. Mm. It's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it's a great distance to go for our sake. Mm. And yet, yet he did. Yeah, but you need to tell, them the, tell me the mechanics of that. Yeah, you could spend years writing doctoral dissertations about that. And that's awesome. You should. It's great. Maybe you can get some more insight than we've had in the past. However, you should approach it with humility. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We've we've got another question here that's um, uh, very practical, actually, and something a lot of us probably come across. Um, the listener saying, um, 
here's the question. Wondering what your advice or stance would be on attending a wedding between a non-believer and a believer. I don't believe this is the way God has intended things. And I also feel that by attending the wedding, it shows that you're in favor of and in support of the marriage. Why would you favor attending or why would you favor not attending? Help me, Pastor. Help me, Ezra. Come on, buddy. Oh, boy. This is a... This is a heavy question. I think, um, first of all, let's start with what we affirm from the scriptures. I think the scriptures would say that Christians ought to marry Christians. The, the, like a, a Christian marrying a non-Christian. Where? Um, you would go to First uh, Corinthians. I will find this passage. I think First Corinthians 7, I think. I'll have to find it here. Is I don't mean to put you on the spot. We, a lot did. of these questions we haven't heard before. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Ezra's being thrown onto yeah, the that's very true onto the spot right now, trying to demonstrate it. I know that a lot of people will will highlight the passage that says you shouldn't be unequally yoked. Yeah. An unbeliever. Um, is that Second Corinthians six? Second Corinthians six fourteen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, which it seems to be a passage that has to do with idolatry. Uh, although I think it probably would have application to this sort of thing, um, but. That tends to be the idea that you shouldn't be yoked together with somebody, and uh, yeah, the, the God, the the one who worships the Lord, shouldn't be yoked together in an unequal way with uh, with someone who's a an idolater. So some people apply that to business, which I, I'm not sure I totally buy, but that's usually the text that people will point out. Ezra, did you find it? First Corinthians seven. Hey, hang on, hang on. No. So it's not in the Bible now. So your whole opinion has been shot to shreds. Okay. No, so. no, no, no. It's First Corinthians, First Corinthians seven, First Corinthians seven thirty nine. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to to whom he she chooses only in the Lord. Mm. Mm. Yep. So then the argument would be. Um, what we would affirm is Christians marry Christians, uh, not to say that non-Christians are b- like uh, uh, are not worthy of a Christian's consideration or whatever. But biblically speaking, we would say Christians marry Christians. So, in a in a in a situation where you have a non-Christian marrying, uh, oh, a, a Christian considering or getting married to a non-Christian, so what do you do there? Oh man, that is a tough. So, would you say it's a sin? Would I say it's a sin? You know what? The Bible actually is clear about who we should marry. So okay. if it is clear of who we should marry, then you would be... <laughs> You'd be breaking what the scriptures yes. say. Okay. You would be breaking what we the should, scriptures say. We should say. make a so, caveat really quickly here. Yeah. There are many people who are married to unbelievers who might be listening to us, mm. and we want to suggest that you should bloom where you're planted which is what 1 Corinthians 7 yeah, is about, right? Yeah, right? So to, right. regardless of what situation you got yourself into for whatever, you should you should live faithfully in this in this spot. Yes. Right? And so what we're what we're talking about is the person who is uh, considering marriage, right? Right. And then they get they they're dating an unbeliever. Susie is dating Johnny. Johnny's an unbeliever. Yep. Johnny she, we're Ezra saying this is this would be wrong this, yes. for her to do. Mm-hmm. So, if it's wrong, Ezra, mm. should should uh, Johnny or should sorry Paul over here <laughs> go to the wedding? Should he attend the wrong wedding? 
w- would he, by attending the wedding, be participating and endorsing the sin? You know, I think uh, different people can answer this question different ways. They would say, okay, so by going to this wedding, um, you are saying, yes, you're endorsing, you're celebrating with them. So there would be those who would argue that way. There'll be others who would say, actually, you know what? Here they are choosing to get married, and this I do not agree with, but now they have made a commitment, and therefore now I will hold them to this commitment that they've made. Now, you may say, yeah, but the the commitment is is sin. It's it's wrong. So why would you hold them to this commitment? Are you now going once they get married and maybe they their eyes open to like like they get um uh should I say they now acknowledge that yes this was probably not the right thing to do. Will you then support their divorce? Are you going to call them to walk away from the commitment they made? And then the argument can keep going from there. I would say uh, would I I'd have to think about that long and hard. I mean, I think this is this is a question that I've been I've been put on the spot over here. I I, I don't know, mm. I don't know. In in one one part of me, I would say, you know what? I would consider going for the sake of um, walking with this couple and actually explaining what marriage is to them, mm. but also making it very clear that this is not my attendance is not an endorsement to what has just yeah, taken this, place here. Is this something like? Is this a? Is are these people that you're actually? doing life with like normally is it somebody that you what if are, it's your children right what if it's your children what if it's your brother what if it is um somebody that maybe uh maybe they aren't believers uh or yeah well this person's a believer but or your brother's the believer marrying an unbeliever like you've talked to him about it you're you've encouraged him to not even date this person at the beginning but now they have and now they're getting married um I mean, you hope that this person will, that the person they married will become a Christian, right? Like that's that's the hope. So, do you just do you walk with them like you like you said, Ezra? Do you walk with them? Do you uh, encourage them? Do you spend time with them? I mean, if these are people that you that you are devoted to in your life, like you you love them deeply, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's not to to just stay away. It, I, you yeah. know, it's it's going to cause a lot of a lot See, of problems I think, I think in the relationship. I think the the to have to have a voice to have a voice in those in in the in the marriage in the lives of the two people coming together uh, would be something that would be important to me mm-hmm. in the sense that I I'd agree. like to proclaim Christ. So then the question would be: Would I would I then attend for the sake of having a voice to the uh, of having a voice in the marriage. But we could even complicate these questions a little bit more and say, okay, so if it is two people who are gay mm-hmm. and they're getting married, mm-hmm. would I still use the same argument mm. uh, there and and attend a wedding that would be two gay people right. uh, going? And again, it's the same... Right, yeah. It's the same argument there. So again, it's th- these are not easy issues. I... I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Okay. Personally. Well, if yeah. you're a pastor giving marital counsel to a believer who's coming saying, yes, I want to be married, would would you in fact marry them? No. no I mean, as a pastor, I would not marry uh, a Christian Why who not? is marrying a non-Christian because the Bible is very explicit there. So, if, well, in what way is the Bible explicit? In the sense that um, a Christian marries a Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. But... 
are you putting the person who's the pastor of that, who's officiating that, in a different position than the person who's witnessing it and endorsing it? See, it, it, good, good argument. I, I think my, my biggest question here has always been, what's the nature of, what are you doing when you're attending a, a wedding? Uh, and how are, how are you being understood, mm-hmm. right, by the community around you? As there's a couple different considerations here. What, I mean, you don't, <clears throat> you need to, uh, participation in, in a sinful act. Uh, if, you, if you're going to just watch a wedding take place and you view yourself as somebody who's just, uh, just there, uh, I, I would think, okay, that's not a big deal. But the problem with a wedding is that, you know, you are actually witnessing a covenant and as one of those witnesses, you are putting your stamp of approval on it. This is where it gets a bit dicey, though. I mean, legally, the only person who person whose witness counts is the best man, the person who signs the, the, the document. person who signs the document. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's why it's it's hard. It, a lot of it to me has to do with how is it how is my presence at the wedding being understood, right? Is it being understood as I endorse what's going on here, which is what I think it is. Yeah. Or is it that I'm here to support uh, my friend, even though I don't agree with what they're doing? And that's hard. That's a hard place to stand. Those are those are hard. I mean, oh. wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say then it it depends on you and the couple who are coming together? Right. 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 I don't think that there is a uh, a, a strident right and wrong here. That's the pro- the problem I have. Is is I don't know if there's a absolute. Right, wrong. My re- my recommendation would be not to be involved in it. That that's me, because I think that it's it's very misleading. Um, but the moment they're married, I would be giving all the support I possibly could for them to uh, honor their vows. And do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I would I would say the same thing about uh, going to a gay wedding. The moment I wouldn't probably I wouldn't attend the wedding, but afterwards I would tr- I would treat them like friends and invite them over and. Do the best I could to 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 show them kindness. Would you would you hold them to their vows as you would a heterosexual couple? Um, I don't think that I, I don't think a gay wedding is is actually a wedding in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's a right. civil union, and then there's right. what, what is marriage biblically? Right. Mm-hmm. So I I you're saying vows before God as if God is standing there saying you better be married to each other. I don't think the Lord sees them as married. Mm-hmm. I think the state does, but this would not be the first time the state and God disagree. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. These are not easy issues, man. Oh, wow. They are, and it's difficult. And the people, yeah. you know, the people who ask questions like that are dealing with it. The, the challenges they're dealing with, re- it's not just a philosophical and, and biblical discussion. It's, it's a real discussion about their cousin or their son or their brother or yeah. their... Or your colleague know, or who you love, your best people friend. People they love. And yep. so this is where it gets dicey. There is, I think there's a way to walk in this, um, but I don't know if the quite, the answers are quite as cut and dried as, no. as you, you know, you can't do that, it would be a sin for you to do that, or that kind of thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, great, guys, I think that's all for today. So if you have questions to send into the extra team, please email us at extra at northview.org. And until next week, the grace of God be with you.